It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I hate to start the podcast by saying, you know, one good thing about the pandemic is, but I'm going to do it anyway. A story that caught my eye says that traffic delays in the Washington area declined more than any other metropolitan area in the U.S., 77%. Uh, it's still like number 12 in terms of traffic congestion, but you do notice it. I mean, I never drive anywhere, but when I do, there's hardly any cars on the road, but 77%, that's unbelievable. Now, I, of course, hasten to add, I want the pandemic to be over. I'm willing to sit in the usual traffic just to get everybody back to work, but wow. Uh, It's kind of a spring-like day here in D.C. We're looking at uh, temps in the upper 60s and around even lower 70s later this week, and so... I hear birds chirping in the backyard. It kind of feels like, at least on the the climate front, like things are getting better. And of course, hope things are getting better on the pandemic front as well. Uh, Got to deal with Bikegate here. This involves one of Joe Biden's dogs. So Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, was on Morning Joe talking about a wide range of issues. And the last question from Mika was, you know, I'm curious because I'm a big fan of rescue dogs. Is Major still there? There's a report that he left. And did he bite somebody? Wow. Well, it turns out that there is a report. CNN is reporting that Major and his big brother, Champ, have been banished to Wilmington after a biting incident involving a member of White House security. Uh, Jen Psaki says, I don't have any specifics. I don't have any updates for you, Mika. Uh, But I can tell you as a dog lover, I know you are, that Mater and Champ are part of the Biden family. They're members of the family. Yeah, they're members of the family. They're now shipped off to Delaware. I mean, you can't have them going around biting people. Uh, So the first bad publicity for the Biden dogs. All right, the New York Times has about a 9 million word piece about the Lincoln Project. Uh, You already know all the broad outlines about how the thing is collapsing and um, the failure to heed. Uh, multiple warnings early on about co-founder John Weaver, who was propositioning young men, in one case a 14-year-old boy, you know, using his position in politics to try to uh, sexually entice them. Well, in this story, I think the, the new thing that comes out here is how much money was involved. You know, the co-founders were Weaver, Steve Schmidt, who you've seen on MSNBC about a billion times, uh, Reed Galen, and longtime GOP strategist Rick Wilson. And they're all Republicans who turned on Trump. So there's this meeting uh, some weeks ago, some months ago, at Steve Schmidt's Utah home, in which he's quoted as saying, five years from now, there will be a dozen billion-dollar media companies that don't exist today. I would like to build one and would invite you all to be a part of that. A lot of this is about the jockey of who was in and who was out, and who would make the money, who would not make the money. Apparently about $27 million which is only a third of the total amount of money that the Lincoln Project raised, went to Reed Galen's consulting firm, and he and the other three founders who I mentioned were paid from that money. Um, and then they, some of that money is going to be used to start this new company, but then they never got off the ground because of the, obviously, you know, flood of bad publicity. Uh, but for the first time, we now have uh, at least some of the email that was sent uh, to, let's see, We have some of the email that was sent to at least one of the founders by an employee from one of the contractors back in January 2020. So more than a year ago, according to four people with direct knowledge of these complaints, this email was sent. uh, And I'm going to read it to you. I'm writing regarding a pattern of concerning behavior by Weaver, 
that has been brought to my attention by multiple people. In addition to being morally and potentially legally wrong, I believe what I'm going to outline poses an immediate threat to the reputation of the organization and is potentially fatal to our public image. And then he proceeds to describe everything. So I, I don't know. A lot of these people have said, well, we didn't know. We had no information. There were only rumors. But if this email went to the highest levels, that could blow up some of those denials. Uh, you know how Donald Trump is fighting with the RNC? Uh, the former president actually sent a cease and desist letter to the RNC to stop using his name and image in raising money. What? So the RNC now is, is denying this. I've responded with a letter to Trump's lawyer saying the committee has every right to refer to public figures as it engages in core First Amendment protected political speech and will continue to do so. Um, so I don't get what's going on. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a limited universe of big Republican donors. And if the RNC and Trump is raising money for his own soon-to-be-formed PAC, I can see where they would clash. But then I also saw an item this morning saying the RNC is going to hold part of one of its upcoming meetings at Mar-a-Lago. So it seems that on one hand, they're cooperating. On the other hand, they're fighting over money and fundraising. I don't completely get it. I got a whole lot to get to this morning. So let's start with story number one. You know, I've got a column this morning uh, on Fox about how uh, President Biden is riding pretty high. He's got a 60 percent approval rating. Uh, The House is about to pass and send to the president's desk uh, this nearly $2 trillion COVID relief bill, which we talked a lot about yesterday. Uh, That's a big, big legislative victory for him. Um, And the bill is popular. The bill, you know, as I mentioned in a poll yesterday, one third of Republicans in this AP poll supporting this bill, or maybe it's a poll by somebody else, and, you know, 97% of Democrats and all that. But while the president is riding pretty high, and as I mentioned, hasn't held a a full-scale news conference, was talking about this on Fox News this morning, he's got a problem that could get worse real quick, and that is the problem at the border. Now, remember, one of the things that Biden ran on was that he was not going to be Donald Trump. He was going to be for humane treatment of families and children at the border. But the problem is it's creating a mess at the border, and even his own people are now having to acknowledge that. This story is going to get worse before it gets better. So even the New York Times has a major story on this now. Thousands of migrant children, thousands, are backed up in U.S. detention facilities along the Mexican border. This is because of a surge from Central America, you know, they come through Mexico, fleeing poverty, fleeing violence, that could, in the Times' words, overwhelm Biden's attempt to create a more humane approach. So um, just in the last two weeks, the number of migrant children in custody along the Texas border, the Mexican border, has tripled to more than 3,250, according to documents reviewed by the Times. And many of them will be held in these what are described as jail-like facilities for longer than the three days allowed by law. Now, the problem for the administration is both the number of children crossing the border and what to do with them once they're in custody. Under the law, children are supposed to be moved to shelters run by HHS. But because the pandemic uh, was, was, had sidelined these shelters until last week, there's a limit, especially with social distancing, on how many kids these facilities can accommodate. So, at the one hand, you have a lot of enforcement activity at the border, which conservatives should like. Border inco- uh, agents encountered a migrant at the border about 78,000 times in January. That's more than double the rate 
of the same time a year ago, January of 2020, and higher than in any January in a decade. There were close to 100,000 apprehensions at the border, including encounters at port entries, in February, according to people familiar with this data. Additional 19,000 migrants, including adults and children, have been caught by border agents since March 1st. So what's happening is this. Trump had a very harsh policy, and the whole point of his policy was to deter people from coming to the U.S., or they had to wait in Mexico while their asylum requests were processed and all of that. Now, Biden has proposed, and Congress hasn't even gotten close to acting on this yet, you know, a, a comprehensive immigration overhaul, which would allow a path to citizenship. So it would take something like eight years uh, for those who come into this country illegally, uh, but also trying to, you know, deal with security at the border. So because of this, and because Biden has publicly talked about uh, he even talked about this when he was vice president, you know, problems at the border, uh, having a more humane approach. The message has gone out to a lot of these families in these Central American countries where poverty is extreme, where political persecution also is a serious problem, and they're heading for the U.S. So they come through the border, and now it's a big headache. What do you do with all these kids and families? So the Trump administration famously separated children from their parents. The Biden administration is not doing that. But at the same time, you could argue, particularly if you're an immigration hardliner on the right, that this is a problem of Joe Biden's own making. Uh, expanding legal pathways for foreign workers. This is all in his bill, which I don't think is going to pass Congress. It may, it may well pass the House. I don't see how this passes the Senate, given the political realities right now. So according to this uh, piece, hundreds of migrant families are being released into the U.S. after being apprehended at the border, prompting predictable attacks by conservatives. Well, that shows a bit of the times is bias, predictable attacks. Why shouldn't this be criticized? This is a problem for the country, not just for the right. Um, if more and more families with kids are coming to America, yes, you want to treat them humanely. But if treat, it's kind of a vicious circle. If treating them humanely means that more and more come, well, eventually Border Patrol agents get overrun. You don't have enough facilities. The facilities get crowded. You've still got the COVID-19 problem. Liberal politicians are, so nobody likes this policy right now. Liberal politicians are denouncing the expansion of detention facilities and the continued imposition of Trump-era rules intended to spread, prevent the spread of coronavirus from immigrants. But why shouldn't that be a concern? I mean, we're going to, you know, you have lockdowns in all these states. You have businesses that can't open or can only open at limited capacity. You have um, schools that are still shut down for in-person instruction. And so naturally, if we're going to go to all of these lanes to protect our citizens from COVID-19, we certainly don't want immigrants bringing it in. I don't think that's an anti-immigrant statement. I think that's a pro-America statement. So nobody's happy. Liberal politicians are unhappy that some Trump-era rules are still in effect. Conservatives are unhappy that so many um, migrant families are coming, getting in, including children, and now you've got to find a place to keep them. Uh, and even if I, Biden's bill was passed, it would take years, months if not years, to fully implement it. So you know, this is a problem that the president is going to have to deal with. And this is the kind of thing where it's a lot easier to criticize as a candidate as it is to deal with the real-world implications of even trying to do the right thing. You know, I have no doubt that Joe Biden's heart is in the right place, that he doesn't want to separate children from their parents, that he doesn't want poor conditions for migrant families trying to get in. But unfortunately, 
Part of the result is it sends a signal to these countries, okay, go to the U.S. Maybe you can get a better life there. All right, story number two. Andrew Cuomo, as you know from watching the news and listening to me, uh, from reading the papers, is in uh, deep trouble right now, politically speaking. He is vowing not to resign. Republicans in the state legislature are talking about starting impeachment proceedings. That won't succeed because the Democrats control both the Assembly and the Senate in Albany. But it's just kind of a sign of the times. Well, in the latest sign of the times, the publisher of Andrew Cuomo's book on leadership during the pandemic is basically saying, we're out. They're not going to print any more copies. They're not going to promote the book anymore. And they're certainly not going to go to a paperback edition. This thing came out about six months ago in October. So is this an example of cancel culture? Well, I say this. This, what this is, is a hard-nosed business decision by Crown Publishing, which is part of Penguin Random House, one of the giant publishing companies in the U.S., because nobody is buying the book. I have the figures here in a minute. So even if you weren't a governor, and even if you weren't uh, suddenly facing uh, one investigation of uh, a cover-up of the magnitude of the number of people who died in nursing homes, um, which is more than 15,000. You know, it's not canceled. This is what the book is about. So the, the, government's, uh, the governor's argument that he was a great leader during the pandemic has kind of been undermined. In fact, I would say it's been obliterated by the nursing home scandal, where he's had to acknowledge not providing the full facts about the extent of the casualties. You know, people's grandmothers and grandfathers. It's an absolute heartbreaking tragedy. So even if you weren't the governor, and your book wasn't selling, well, they don't rush you out to, for a second promotion tour. Uh, they don't rush you out a, a paperback. And how would you, put, how would you promote the book? You, you can't put Andrew Cuomo on morning television or cable or radio stations. Every single question is going to be about, but didn't you screw up? And what about the nursing homes? And what about Lindsey Boylan? And what about Charlotte Bennett? And are you going to resign? And what about sexual harassment? And these other women have come forward. You know, that's not a, a, an environment in which a publisher, it's a nightmare for Crown Publishing. So, even when Governor Cuomo was deciding to write this book last June, now we know, according to reporting by the Times and others, uh, that he was then starting, or he and his aides were then starting to withhold the actual figures of COVID-related fatalities in nursing homes or nursing home patients who were taken out and then put into hospitals. So, um, you know, I think this book will go down as kind of Andrew Cuomo's mission accomplished moment. You know, he wrote a book during the pandemic about what a great job he did. And obviously, that no longer looks to be the case, to put it mildly. Um, so even before the sexual harassment allegations, because I think that was the tipping point here, because the, the revelations about the nursing home deaths and the Cuomo administration's mishandling of that have been out for months now, and more uh, realistically, more intensively, for some weeks. But they didn't pull the plug, or at least they didn't admit they were pulling the plug on the book then. It was only after the women came forward, made the accusations, and Cuomo apologized, and he's embarrassed, and he feels awful about it, and never meant to make anyone uncomfortable. He is under siege right now, and that's not an environment in which any publishing company can push a book. And, you know, they're kind of walking away from Andrew Cuomo. So, again, even before the women came forward with these harassment allegations between January 23rd and February 27th, according to this time story, his book uh, only sold about 400 copies. A total uh, of 45,000 sold and a few thousand more ebooks. So that's it for the book. 
And Cuomo's got much bigger problems right now than worrying about selling a few more copies of his book. He's got to find a way with the Democratic leader of the state Senate coming out and saying he should step down. He's got to find a way to govern. He's got to find a way to salvage his reputation. He's got to deal with investigations on both harassment and nursing homes. Uh, very, very different picture. And by the way, if you look at a year ago when, when, when Donald Trump was saying the virus would be gone by April and it's going to vanish and it's going to magically disappear by the summer and all that. You know, the media's two heroes in the pandemic were Andrew Cuomo for his daily briefings, later won that Emmy Award, and Gavin Newsom for moving quickly to lock down California. Well, Gavin Newsom is on the verge of facing a recall election. In part, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the way he's handled the pandemic. He told people, you know, don't go to any crowded places. Then he went to this fancy restaurant, the French Laundry, and got caught. Um, and a lot of people in California feel that, you know, now that things are easing up somewhat, but not completely, you know, that some of these restrictions should be repealed. And so you got to get like a million signatures in California to force a recall election. That's how Arnold Schwarzenegger got elected. And they've gotten, and you always have a lot that are disqualified. So now there's well over a million. And it looks like it may well happen. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, story number three. I want to come back to the British royals because everybody's talking about it. And it's such a fascinating snapshot of British and American history. You know that Oprah interview? 17 million people watched. Uh, that's a monster number these days. So she did very well with that on CBS. Meanwhile, the reverberations of Britain are just sort of off the charts. And Piers Morgan, our old friend who lost his job at CNN, he's now, as I mentioned yesterday, the co-host of Good Morning Britain, and he hates Meghan Markle, and he's gone on and on about how what an awful human being she is. He walked off the set of his own morning show today because one of his own presenters, it wasn't even a guest, a guy named Alex Beresford, uh, was criticizing him. And Piers said, I can't do this, and he just stormed off. Beresford was calling out um, the things that Morgan has said about Meghan Markle, and he said, look, the two of you had a personal relationship, or the two of us had a personal relationship with Meghan Markle from the past, but she's effectively, uh, effectively cut it off, which she's entitled to do. Has she said anything about you since you cut, she cut you off? I don't think she has, but you continue to trash her. At this point, Pierre says, okay, I'm done. He starts to leave, and Beresford, he doesn't let up. He says, this is absolutely diabolical behavior. I'm sorry, but Piers spouts off on a regular basis, and we all have to sit here and listen. Incredibly hard to watch. Meanwhile, uh, in the British papers, The Sun has a, a story about, on the same show, on this very same show, I don't know if it was, this was this morning or yesterday morning, Meghan Markle's estranged father, Thomas Markle, called into the show, and he described how Prince Harry phoned him when he was in the hospital, recovered from a heart attack. And here's what Thomas Markle said. Harry had said to me, if you'd listened to me, this wouldn't have happened to you. I don't know if that's true. Me, laying in a hospital bed after a procedure. And that was kind of snotty, so I hung up on him. He also uh, said in this interview with Piers Morgan and his co-host, we all make mistakes, but I've never played naked pool and I've never dressed up like Hitler to infamous uh, incidents from Prince Harry's past back in 2012 in Las Vegas, and he was photographed with a Nazi uniform. I had forgotten about that, I must say. Uh, Jen Psaki was asked about the Oprah interview. She praised the courage of this couple for speaking out. Quote uh, from Psaki, for anyone to come forward and speak about their own struggles with mental health and tell their personal story, that takes courage. And that's certainly something the president believes. So remember, Meghan Markle in this Oprah interview said she didn't want to live anymore and she was having suicidal thoughts. Um, 
interesting piece in Politico about this, about the American reaction, because I just there's something about this has just absolutely touched a nerve. And if there's just this there's American fixation on the royal family. I don't fully understand it. A lot of people in this country could care less. And a lot of people in this country, you know, every royal wedding gets monster ratings and all of that. So this political piece says it depends on what side of the fence you're on. To liberals, Meghan Markle was the victim because of a problem much broader than her own life. Her marriage to Prince Harry was undertaken either with ignorance about how the royal family works because it's hard to see cold reality through a romantic fairy tale. This is the part that I thought was at least convincing on Meghan's part. Uh, or with hope that an antiquated institution was ready for the real change she represented, in part because she's of mixed race. The disaster that resulted is the fault of the institution, in the liberal view, uh, and all the rigid inside players who set the rules of what Markle referred to as the firm. The monarchy was never ready to change, and Meghan, who was idealistic and well-meaning, never had a chance against that antiquated power. Okay, that's the liberal view. Um... The conservative view is Meghan Markle should have known what she was getting into. She should have been thankful for the astounding privilege that had been bestowed upon her. Her declaration that she hadn't researched Harry's background before she dove into a relationship strained credibility. Who doesn't proceed a first or second date with a deep dive through Google? The Sussex's, Sussex's complaints about money, the fact that the palace declined to pay for baby Archie's security detail, seemed tone deaf coming from people who lived in literal palaces and stepped out in designer evening wear. And they even hold up at, uh, they took refuge at Tyler Perry, I guess he's a famous mogul, L.A. mansion. Um, That's viewed by the left as a rescue from a sympathetic friend of color. Look to the right like another example of myopic celebrity culture. How could these people, Hollywood royalty and literal royalty, be the last to know about how awful the monarchy can be? And I saw both sides of that because I'm not in either camp. Uh, but, you know, it made the monarchy look awful. Uh, it made, at times, Meghan and Harry look like entitled, rich, tone-deaf brats, and that's why people are still debating it. Uh, one other tidbit about the interview with Thomas Markle, Meghan's dad. Um, his daughter told Oprah Winfrey she felt betrayed by his collaborations with the press. And the dad who's now says, yeah, I lied to her. Uh, I dealt with the press, and I lied to her about it. But the bottom line is, I've never heard back from Meghan or Harry in any way, shape, or form. When they say I'm taking advantage of the press, basically what I do is, because I haven't heard from them, I do a story for the press. If I don't hear from them in 30 days, I'll do another story for the press. So he's basically blackmailing his daughter into talking to him, which he doesn't want to do, by leaking crap to the London tabloids. Thanks, Dad. What a father. All right, story number four. You may remember the name Alexi McCammond. She was, until uh, just a few days ago, an Axios reporter. She is the one who got into the romantic relationship with former White House Deputy Press Secretary T.J. Ducklow, which prompted Ducklow to just, you know, scream at a political reporter who was doing a story on whether this was conflict of interest for Axios uh, because it hadn't been disclosed. It had been disclosed to the bosses, but not to the readers. And uh, he yelled at this uh, Tara Palmieri, the uh, Politico reporter, and said he was just going to ruin her career and destroy her reputation on social media. Anyway, Alexei McCammon, just a few days ago, was named as the top editor, the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. And now there's been a revolt at Teen Vogue against Alexei McCammon, who's 27 years old. Some Teen Vogue employees went public with a protest letter uh, that was sent to one of the top editors there. 
and there's been a deluge online. Uh, this has to do with some old tweets by Alexi McCammon uh, that she did when she was, I guess, a college student that were racist and homophobic. So here's the, the, here's the quote from the letter. We've written a letter to management at Condé Nast about the recent hire of Alexi McCammon. In light of her past racist and homophobic tweets, we've heard the concerns of our readers, and we stand with you in a moment of historically high anti-Asian violence and amid the ongoing struggles of the LGBTQ community, we, as the staff of Teen Vogue, fully reject those sentiments. Now, what did Alexi Hammond have to say? Well, she deleted these tweets back at the end of 2019, saying, Today I was reminded of some past insensitive tweets, and I deeply am sorry to anyone I offended. Uh, they do not reflect my views or who I am today. And now, in this current controversy, she has said the following. You've seen some offensive, idiotic tweets from when I was a teenager that perpetuated harmful and racist stereotypes about Asian Americans. I apologize for them years ago, but I want to be clear today. I apologize deeply to all of you for the pain this has caused. There's no excuse for language like that. This is something she wrote to the Teen Vogue staff. Well, this stuff is ugly and inexcusable. That's true. On the other hand, she was a teenager. And this just raises the question, was, can anybody ever get a job ever without you know, their digital past coming back to haunt them? Now, it's one thing if it's from a year ago and you're, you're you know, a grown-up professional. I don't know. Somebody who was a college student who was dumb and insensitive get a pass and she could be defined by that for the rest of her life. There you have it. Uh, big controversy at Teen Vogue. And finally, story number five. You know, I like to focus sometimes on stories about what life is like in the pandemic because it's the reality for all of us no matter where you live uh you know your life my life everybody's life around the globe has changed changed drastically so there's a piece in the atlantic by ellen cushing uh, that has what i consider a pretty arresting first sentence the lead is i first became aware that i was losing my mind in late december it was a Friday night, the start of my 40th something pandemic weekend, hours and hours with no work to distract me. Uh, I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to fill the time. What did I used to do on weekends? I asked my boyfriend. He really couldn't remember either. Since then, I can't stop noticing all the time the things I'm forgetting. Sometimes I grasp at a word or a name. Sometimes I walk into the kitchen and find myself bewildered as to why I am there. At one point during the writing of this article, I absentmindedly cleaned my glasses with nail polish remover. Okay. That's a sign that something's not going too well. Other times the forgetting feels like someone is taking a chisel to the bedrock of my brain, prying everything loose. This is the fog of late pandemic and it is brutal. In the spring, we joked about the before times, but they were still within reach in our short-term memories. Now, not so much. Um, I confess I haven't had this happen to me much. I mean, I certainly feel the fog at times, uh, because it just feels like every day you do the same thing. You, maybe you make a run to the grocery store. Or maybe you try to see a family member, which you got a distance. And it's just, you know, it's been a year of this now. And it has really taken a big psychological toll on all of us, even those of us who are lucky enough to have jobs, be able to work from home. I don't want to sound like, you know, an upper middle class whiner. It is obviously much harder on people who've had the virus, who have lost loved ones to the virus, uh, or who have lost their jobs, who can't do their jobs because their jobs require them to show up in schools, to show up in hospitals, to show up in grocery stores, and all of that. But this piece is not just the, you know, the uh, complaints of one person. She actually calls up some experts, and this is very interesting. Uh, the Atlantic says that to some degree this is natural adaptation. 
that forgetting is evidence of the resilience of our species. Humans forget a great deal of what happens to us, and we tend to do it pretty quickly after the first 24 hours or so. So here's a, a woman who's a neuroscientist at Georgia Tech who is saying, our brains are very good at learning different things and forgetting the things that are not a priority. As the pandemic has told, taught us new habits, this is from the piece, and made old ones obsolete, our brains have essentially put actions like taking the bus and going to restaurants in deep storage and placed social distancing and coughing into our elbows near the front of the closet. When our habits change back, presumably so will our recall. Because there's a lot of things like we used to do that now you got to stop and think, well, what is that person's name or how exactly do I drive to this place? Because we don't need it anymore. So that's our brains kind of rewiring themselves and it also pre uh, presents itself in people who just feeling not as sharp or more forgetful. Here's a quote from another person, uh, a guy who's a neuroscientist at University of California, Irvine. We're all walking around with some mild cognitive impairment. Based on everything we know about the brain, two of the things that are really good for it are physical activity and novelty. A thing that's very bad for it is chronic and perpetual stress. Well, there I can certainly relate because there just is a lot of stress. I mean, even the stuff that I do as a TV guy, you know, used to be I'd go to the office and, you know, somebody would make me up and I'd go in a studio and somebody would wire me up and I would look into the screen and I would talk. That's the job. I mean, it's also the job to read and write and podcast and, you know, research and know what you're talking about. But in, in its simplest form, those are the mechanics. At home, I've got to use something called LiveView or Skype. I've got to set up the lighting. I've got to worry about tech problems, which happen all the time. I've got to do my own makeup. Again, you know, you're not going to feel sorry for me. I'm not asking that. My, my point is there is a lot of stress and there's just the stress of not being able to get on a plane or a train and go somewhere, go visit, you know, old friends, go visit relatives, particularly elderly relatives. It's taking a toll on all of us and we, we all feel it in different ways. It's not, you know, some people feeling more forgetful. Some people are just bored out of their skulls or they have cabin fever or they don't know what to do with their kids. And the impact on our children, particularly those who have either part or full-time um, virtual learning, it's hard for them. They don't get to see their friends, and particularly in the winter in colder states where, you know, you can't just hang out outside because people are reluctant to go inside and then they have trouble with classes and then you have to help them, but you're not really qualified besides you have this other job. I can't wait for this to be over, and I'm sure you can't either. Uh, so it's an interesting snapshot. This one Atlantic writer feels like this is really taking a toll on her brain, and now she has some scientists backing her up. Having said all that, I really appreciate you listening. I hope you will stay safe. I hope you'll get a vaccine soon if that becomes available to you. And if you would subscribe, I'd appreciate it. You can go to Spotify or Amazon Music or your Amazon device, Google Podcasts. Apple, iTunes. We'll see you all tomorrow. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.